Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Intensive practice at Tassajara. It becomes more of a sort of retreat center that opens the doors widely beyond the Zen world. It's wonderful, invites people in for the summer to do workshops and retreats and just kind of get away and sit in the hot springs. Uh, but it makes it such that, you know, three week practice intensives aren't available, but they're not doing that this year. And so Paul and Gil saw this as an opportunity to, to try something new and then doing so take a fresh look at this mm. way that we've been practicing at Tassajara for now almost like 60 years. Wow. Yeah. Mm, I hadn't realized that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that like a, a, a spirit of curiosity and experimentation um, really animated the intensive from, from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit about those two schools, about the Mahayana uh -huh. and the Soto's particular flavor of the Mahayana and the Theravadan and the particular in, insight meditation center and, and embodied in those two teachers? I mean, how are they? Sure. Yeah. Well, what was really interesting and I think what was really interesting and surprising to Paul even. So on the first night of the intensive, we, we kind of get together for more or less like a like welcome. Let's just kind of get together and check in and talk about what we might be up to here. And Paul, uh, who for simplicity's sake, we'll put him kind of on the far spectrum of the, the formal uh, expression of this teaching. That's kind of more pure Soto Zen, if you want to call it that. Walks into the room wearing just casual clothes, doesn't have one of these on, very laid back. <laughs> and a couple of minutes behind him is Gil, who walks in with Sun Wang and his brown rocket. So he came in in the whole Zen garb. And it, it was hilarious because, you know, Paul's like, well, I just assumed Gil would be wanting to sort of throw off the yoke <laughs> of all of this form. Right. And uh, it turns out that Gil was most interested in like coming and like really doing Wow. Soto Zen practice that he huh. hadn't had a chance to do in a long time. I don't think he had his robes on at Tassajara since the late 80s. Um, so that's, it's, that's one way it's embodied. I mean, right. kind of, they did it backwards sort of to begin. But um, for now, I'll, I'll, I'll try to relay a little bit of what, what Gil relayed near the end of the intensive about the way he was thinking about this is that um, right at the heart of the Soto way of doing things, which is what we're doing here for the most part, is a focus on um, like the manifestation and expression of practice in every moment. Right? Mm. Like, even zazen is not, though it's really like the center of gravity and the anchor of the practice, especially in a monastic setting, the entire flow of the day is zazen. Um, it's not like we're doing zazen and then it's kind of interrupted by lunch or uh, work practice. Mm. 
we're sitting such that we can just keep on sitting while we're doing everything else. Yeah. Right? And we'll talk maybe a little bit more about the, well, I'll just say something now. It's much more formal. There's a lot of, we turn everything into a ceremony all day long. I mean, that's mm. one way to think about what monastic life is like. It's that every facet of your life becomes a, a, a ritual, a ceremonial expression. And in so being, it's not, you know, it's not just you eating lunch, but it's you eating lunch and like expressing the teaching somehow. And I will say that having been at Tassahara, there are altars everywhere. Oh yeah, absolutely. At the bathroom, at the bathhouse, yeah. in the kitchen, yeah. everywhere. Yeah. So there is a ceremony for everything you yeah. do. Yeah. And usually we didn't do it this time. When we, we made lots of adjustments. I'll talk about that. That's another way that these two met. That's really interesting. What we sort of kept and what we let go of. Um, but, you know, during a, a, a formal practice period, even eating, like, I think a typical meal or yoki meal where we eat at our, our, our seat is about 40, 45 minutes long. And six minutes of that is like putting <laughs> food in your mouth, you know, like the, the least of it is the part where you like consume food. It's, it's receiving food. It's like caring about your utensils. It's about again like a ceremonial expression mm. so anyway soto zen as like really emphasizing expression and manifestation and then gil said uh you know that the tradition that he comes from teaching in this vipassana school so vipassana is a newish uh school of buddhism that arose mostly in the west in about the last 50 years that is the primary kind of theravadan school um and so when if i say vipassana and theravada for the sake of this talk it's the same um but gil said you know what we do at insight is we really emphasize um making contact with this kind of awakened mind or familiarizing yourself with mm. it or um sort of discovering it and nourishing it um in oneself mm. And though they might have a work practice or a practice work practice period. Um, and of course they'll encourage the participants to be mindful and so on while they're doing that. It doesn't have the same emphasis in mm. valence that it mm -hmm. does at Tassahara. And so he was really excited about uh, like leaning into that. Yeah. And I'd say about half the people that were there came more from his communities oh. that have never nice. been in a formal Zen setting. Um, so again, I was kind of surprised. I thought it was going to be like Vipassana on Monday and Zen on Tuesday. Uh -huh. and Vipassana, uh -huh. yeah. Not, not the case. Um, and so he was able to then really try to focus on bringing forth teachings from the Theravada tradition that explicitly, uh, supported kind of the way we're used to talking about things in the Zen mm, world. So in a more formal maybe not formal but mm -hmm. how how what did you see that he was bringing from vipassana that was similar or that came together with zen and made a bridge yeah um what comes to mind and i think this is because this was something of a thread through the whole intensive that he kept sort of returning to um as a mostly Zen practitioner, I could 
felt to me like he was really trying to work um, on something of a tension mm-hmm. between the way that something's expressed in the Theravada school and the way we usually talk about it in Zen. And uh, what that was is uh, he gave this wonderful talk where he, he started by saying something like, you know, we talk a lot in Zen about taking refuge in the triple treasure, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. It's kind of, it's the entry gate in mm. a way. Um, and he said, you know, but in these, the, 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 the ancient teachings, the Buddha never, that's never the instruction that never hmm. comes up. Wow. Uh, it's done occasionally when people are moved to do it, but the Buddha never recommended that people take refuge in the, the triple treasure. Um, rather the teaching was to take refuge in the, in the self. And not make re- take refuge in the self, but make oneself a refuge to make mm. oneself safe wow. for beings. Right? Wow. And so there's a couple tensions there. Number one is like the emphasis that we generally put in the Mahayana tradition that this is for the benefit of beings. This is right. for the benefit of others. This is about sort of staying until we've all well, gotten great. whatever we're after, I guess. Right. Um, so that's kind of tension number one. And tension number two is that it's very much about like making oneself a refuge. Like there's a there's an air of like a, a project. Like we're trying to build something here, huh. right? Uh, and again, in Zen, we usually de-emphasize that. This is really just a matter of emphasis and de-emphasis. Interesting. The emphasis in Zen would be you know, we're manifesting what's already the case. We're bringing forward and making explicit what's already huh. here as opposed to the Theravada, which is going to lean into it more in terms of like, no, you need to like do something. You need to make this happen. You need to train the mind to become a refuge. So it sounds like there's more instruction and actual things to do. Like the Soto Mm -hmm. has more instruction about the forms Mm -hmm. and here's how the ceremony goes. And here's Mm -hmm. when you bow. And the Vipassana or the insight has more, okay, here's how you're going to build this uh-huh. refuge. Here's uh-huh. how you're going to um, recognize and then um, refine or strengthen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can put like Theravada teachings like in bullet points in a way that I can never take a good Dharma talk at his own temple. <laughs> you know? That's a really, that's a really <laughs> great way to describe it. You know, there's the seven factors awakening and the five hindrances and that like the teachings are very clear, they're very systematic huh. and they uh, at least seem to be kind of really directed at something like self-cultivation, uh-huh. which through years, you know, two thousands of years of different Zen schools forming and all the kind of uh, doctrinal, you know, fights between schools and stuff over the years we we came up with some idea that there's like the mahayana which is the great vehicle that's really about like liberating all beings and then there's the old school hinayana which is about like self-improvement and they're kind of like you know so we really tried to like open that up and let it and let it go Uh. um and so yeah and then he brought he would always connect any Theravada teaching he brought up with 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 usually with Dogen mm. and this wonderful teaching of Dogen saying like do not practice the Buddha Dharma for yourself do not practice the Buddha Dharma to benefit others practice the Buddha Dharma to practice the Buddha Dharma and give rise to this wisdom and compassion that is sort of the inevitable 
byproduct of that. Um, mm. And so in terms of the kind of, you know, conceptual teachings that were going on throughout, to me, that was something we were turning and turning a lot. Paul actually introduced, I think, a poem that a lot of people will be familiar with, David White's called The House of Belonging. Yes. And so in Paul's talks, he was really, yeah, talking about the house of belonging. And then there, David White says the same thing. Like, mm. I have to like come, what is the word he uses? Something about like, like meeting his like adult aloneness is the word he uses. Wow. Right? The adult, the aloneness. And then that aloneness, like that becomes the temple to which every, everyone is invited, you know? Wow. But it, it really does begin like the Dharma is this body, you know, and I think there can be a way in certain Mahayana conversations and traditions where um, we lose sight of the fact that like your practice is just yours, you know, and you wow. need to take care of that. Wow. Yeah. It's very interesting. I mean, I'll, I'll listen to this talk again and more Dharma talks will come out of this. Mm. That's <laughs> great. Yeah. yeah. What Dogen, you know, that idea of Dogen saying, don't do it for yourself. Don't do it for other people, but you're doing it to grow into something that is a seed. Yeah. 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 Sort of. Even the, the teaching that comes up here, with some regularity from the Lotus Sutra, famously of uh, only a Buddha together with a Buddha can realize Buddhas, which I think rightly so is usually translated like this, uh, the, the relational dimension of practice that we can't forget this relational depth that's right at the heart of all this. But Paul noted that the word only um, can also be translated alone. Wow. Alone Buddha together with Buddhas does this practice, right? Wow. So again, even right there in the Lotus Sutra, like this feeling that somehow maybe the suggestion is that in some of the Mahayana discourse now, like we're losing a little bit of touch with like the, the part that is that just, huh. just you, you know? Interesting. Yeah. So what's the difference between alone Buddha and Buddhas and only a Buddha and a Buddha? A relational Buddha, yeah, yeah. And thinking about the life as being a process that happens between everything mm -hmm. and the idea of cultivating a single thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, those two things, I can really see that that would give a different uh, emphasis. Mm -hmm. And here, I feel like the way it comes up for me in this space is from sort of some of the psychological teachings that we that we work here, this idea that like, you can't let go of a self until you have one. Mm. The quickness with which in some spiritual communities, we want to sort of jump past the part where I have to like really be myself, you yeah. know, and take responsibility for myself. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think I'll, I'll leave that there. I mean, mm -hmm. that, those were, those were very much the waters we were swimming in. Yeah. For this intensive. Yeah. yeah. 
So tell us about an average day. I mean, you were there for three weeks, and yeah. it might be nice to know what was it like? How early did you get up? What yeah. Happened? So it was fun. It was roughly uh, based on the usual practice period schedule. Um, but I don't know, I want to say like loosened up isn't quite the word. A few changes were made, right? A few changes were made for several reasons. I think one, to make it more accessible, because it's really a rare event that a pretty large number of people without a lot of formal training get to go to Tassajara and like get into a practice intensive. Yeah. Generally, you need to have some, some time, you need to have done practice periods at other places. And this is all, all good. You want to know your, it's a, it's a demanding, uh, it's a demanding experience. And so this time to, to really open the doors more widely, not that there wasn't discernment and who came. Right. Um, but it's like, yeah, how do we make this, how do we make this accessible? You know, how do yeah. we, how do we bring people in? What's the right amount of, it's, it's what attracted me to Afamata early on too, was talking to Flint and Peg and realizing like, oh, what we're doing here is this constant sort of meditation on what are we keeping from this like wonderful tradition that we are representing and trying to move forward here? Right. And what are we letting go and why? And what is, what is the formal side and what does it have to do with it? You know, right. this kind of constant negotiation around uh, the more kind of formal aspects of practice. And yeah, so yeah. this was delightful because the whole three weeks was like, in a way, like just that. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know we, we struggled at Apamata. Maybe struggled is not the right word, but negotiated and considered this idea of inclusivity. Mm -hmm. You know, how mm -hmm. do you make people feel comfortable mm -hmm. um, in, a, in a setting where it can be very intimidating? Mm -hmm. And we made a couple easy adjustments uh, rather than uh, admonitions that we usually read. We read like guidelines, you know, <laughs> rather than the primary teaching in a monastery generally is follow the schedule completely. All you actually need to know if anybody who ever goes, if you ever want to do such a practice at a monastery really is to just follow the schedule completely and show up completely. Um, and this time, I think it was more difficult because it, again, they changed the wording a little bit to like follow the schedule in a way that's wise for you. That's really different. Yeah, <laughs> which seems like a like a loosening or an e making it more easy. But like, I don't know that that's the, I don't know that that's the case. It's a lot easier for me when I'm just like, all right, that's I'm, that's it. I'm going to be here where it says to be here. Exactly done. But the moment I have to start sort of like discerning whether I want to go to the, you know, right 50th period of Zazen today or not. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it gets tricky. So, okay. So we would wake up at, uh, the wake up bell, I think was at 5 a.m., which is wonderful. The monastery, like there's really someone with a bell who runs through the monastery and wakes everybody up. Um, we'd sit a couple periods, probably a couple 40 minute periods in the morning have service, which is a shortened version of the service that we generally do at Tassamara. Mm -hmm. um, and then we would, we had all of our meals in the dining room. That was a big difference yeah. rather than Oriyoki, which is this mm -hmm. formal way of eating where you stay at your seat. Um, 
and again, I don't know, but it's not, it wasn't more or less, it's everything that you kind of let go of brings another set of challenges along with right. it. This time we ate in the dining room and that was a whole thing to explore, you know, yeah. It was yeah. in its own way fascinating. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's much easier to kind of keep this continuity when all I have to do to eat is like spin around from the wall the other direction and like receive food to like the way that you can kind of like pop the bubble between the zendo and right. the, the, the dining hall. So we would eat um, and then we would work for three hours. We moved the work period to three hours in the morning. I think everybody knows this, but like I mentioned at the beginning, work practice and zazen are like same same thing same level of emphasis and importance mm. um i work in the shop that's where i've always worked when i'm when i'm there so i do like handyman stuff and chop wood and mm. fix things that need to be fixed and then there'd be either a dharma talk or more zazen lunch and then a time in the afternoon that we called the Dharma activity. And I think that was just to kind of give us some leeway. Yeah. So sometimes that was a talk. Sometimes that was a more sort of interactive uh, engagement that reminded me a lot of what we do here quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and other times like it would just be Paul leading like a yoga class to help us loosen oh, up nice. a little bit. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And then, yeah, we had like maybe an hour and a half hour for bath time, shower time, yes. and then back to the zendo for service, dinner, zazen, zazen, bedtime. Mm -hmm. And we do four day, four day weeks. Um, and then the morning of the fifth day after zazen and silent breakfast would be our personal day where ah. there's no schedule until evening zazen. Ah, so you got some so. time to actually experience the place yes. as opposed to the yeah. intensive yeah trails and you can go for hikes you can swim in the cold creek you can sit in the hot springs um something i didn't do which was interesting and for me significant was like not study buddha dharma um i really had a feeling this time that like my head was mm. very full of a lot of old buddhist furniture that mm. was not necessarily helpful huh and so I just really, uh, it was a very like, uh, sensuous, uh, 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 yeah. Practice intensive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that. Actually, let me check what, how much time do we have? 14 minutes. No oh, no, no. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, we'll save that for another Dharma talk and I want to open it up for questions if that's all right. With yeah. You. I'd love this to be a conversation. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. Um, Anne has a question. I do. Actually, it's three questions. Bring it. I'm just going to ask them all because mm -hmm. they're not that long. I'm going to answer probably. I was wondering whether Sangha Week's going on at the same time, mm -hmm. how many people were in your group, mm -hmm. and then also um, has was participating in this practice um, session. Uh, influential um where your direction is heading right now in your path okay number one sangha week is a wonderful thing that sanghas do most of which are affiliated with san francisco zen center where you take a group of people from your sangha and your teacher and you all together go out to tasahara and spend a week together and 
it'd be like a bunch of Appamana folks going instead of this sendo, we have the lovely valley of Tassajara. Mm -hmm. They did do those all summer, but they shut it down for us. So those three weeks were, were closed. Um, I believe there were like 50 people there about, I don't know, 10 to 20 that were probably about 20 that were residents of, of Tassajara, mm. who I was really happy. I didn't know. I thought they might end up kind of working in the background or something. And we, they were part of the intensive too. Mm. So it was those of us who came in plus the, the Tassajara residents. And is the, the experience of that intensive, is it like influencing my practice now? Yes, for sure. For sure. I think most importantly in ways that I don't know about, but um, yet, but I think in a really obvious way, the experience of like holding the forms like we did, Mm -hmm. like in this experimental kind of way was really rich and something that I think I'm still thinking about a lot. Um, and there was some real healing for me, honestly, between, between me and the, 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 the Theravadan teachings, which mm. to me are just vastly different than really what we're doing at the Zen center. They're two you know, thousands of years older. They're coming from a different culture. They have different sort of direction and methods. And I think over the years, I've been at a lot of places where I felt that those teachings were employed kind of unskillfully in a way that kind of distorted the good that they had to offer and what was going on in the Zen context that they were offered in. And most of it was probably me. I'm kind of a curmudgeonly person sometimes. (laughs) Passionate. Passionate. (laughs) Um, But being with these two teachers who are just so Paul too, he trained in Theravada, he trained in Thailand for a long time before he so both of them have really, really deeply trained in both sort of sides. And to see the way in which they were very clear about the differences and the importance of preserving and not just kind of willy nilly conflating, you know, like I read a Dogen text and Dogen is just very difficult to understand it may or may not be appropriate to draw a clear teaching from Theravada to illuminate that, you know, and to see the way that they negotiated that was really instructive. And Mm. I think it softened my heart again around a lot of these earlier teachings. So I hope to continue this experiment of seeing how they fit and don't fit together. I'm going to do one more question from the folks online. And then I think, that's all the time we're going to have. Whoa. We have a little time, I know. Okay. So okay. is anybody online like to raise their hand? Yeah, Monica. So John and Anne, thank you so much. And John, you are such a wonderful speaker. I mean, I was going, how in the world to compare the two? And, and But you gave a really good taste of the retreat, I think. I mean, from what you can get here. Um, I have a just a sort of silly question. Did... Ha- did Gil wear the robes again, or did he wear them all the time? Or oh yeah, he was he was he was in full robes the whole the whole time, and he was serving his doshi the whole time. Oh my god! Which was delightful because he didn't know what he was doing, and just like the most <laughs> wonderful uh, way, you know. 
So I, during COVID, I did about six or seven retreats with Gil online and really, uh, and what I'm wondering, what I really felt when you said like your heart opened up the, the, just the, the sentence about, you know, follow the schedule wisely for yourself. To me, that, that just opened my heart with like just this other layer of compassion that I, I really loved um, sinking into and following the schedule. But I mean, was that one difference that you felt or um, during your experience there? Yeah, I mean, I think so. But like, I, I don't know that I thought about it like per- particularly in connection with that mm-hmm. expression. Um, I think I could give as many examples that of 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 Gil and Paul talking about how like just really doing it is an expression of compassion as well or can be so I mean I think the just the care in which we were just in this constant sort of negotiation with Mm. this experience certainly brought that forth you know Mm. um so glad you got something Paul kept returning to and I think this is true is like we'd be standing out I remember I was sitting by the coffee tea area with him or something and he just said I wonder if this is what it was like for Suzuki Roshi you know Mm. like he brought all these like hippies out here (laughs) and he has all these Zen forms and like we're trying to do them but he knows that we're bungling around and like is this what it was like you know to discover this and like what is it to discover it but also like not be just making it up i think is the question you know Mm. like what is the way to like really really uphold the forms as this expression Mm. right but like without making them too seriously um paul would say you know we make mistakes but we didn't do anything wrong you know Mm. Um, and so one moment comes up that was really lovely. I was, uh, I was Gil's Jiko. And so during service, my, my job, we were offering flower petals instead of incense at this service was to, you know, come in with Gil and, and be at the altar to offer flower petals and then go kind of stand in the back while we're chanting and bowing and, um, so we do the first offering. I haven't done this in a while. I was rusty too. Um, I've been a while since I've done full kind of service at Tassahara. And there's this moment where a bell rings in the middle of the Heart Sutra and the Doshi steps back and goes to make a second offering at the altar. And Gil moved and I was moved and I just, I went with him. And as soon as I was approaching the altar, I knew for sure that it was wrong. You know, I knew for sure. And so I offered flower petals and he offered them to the Buddha and we bowed deeply and we continued with service. And afterwards, we always have a little sort of like huddle, the, the, the priest and Tanto and Chico afterwards. And we bowed and just grinned at each other. And I said, I, I think we made an extra offering. You know, and he said, wasn't that lovely? You know? <laughs> and I said, yeah, like, when in doubt, make offerings to the Buddha. <laughs> and I hope that's something that stays stays with me. So I hope that kind of captures like the, the spirit mm. of, of things. It was really wonderful to like, for Gil to be 
trying to bring bring it completely right, service right. and then he would just like bow and be like oh we're supposed to do this you know and then he'd get up and be like all right back it up back it up let's do this chant and then let's bow <laughs> and we would grin and then but when it was time to come back it was like okay now let's but let's like really do it again you know how to toggle between yeah we're not still laughing we're doing it yeah right. yeah like how can you really like bring it but not have to do that by being uptight um mm. or by kind of lapsing into a feeling of like well i don't know it doesn't really it doesn't really matter you know yeah like, what if yeah. it what if it does <laughs> totally <laughs> you know well thank you so much yeah i really appreciate it and like i said i'll re-listen to this and there'll be more dharma talks that spring from it i'm sure wonderful yeah it felt like this went too quickly and i love to talk about this stuff so if anybody wants to continue offline um, please don't hesitate to find me i live out back you can knock if you're in town <laughs> yeah all right i think we will go ahead and move on to the next part of our uh, offering